Uh, I have a confession. Um, I struggle with my belief in God daily. And uh, I, say that, I say it that way on purpose because it's, that's the meaning behind why we're doing this series, The Mythical Gods, is this isn't just an apologetic conversation about us versus them and, and what types of gods exist and the human nature to make idols out of things. It's, it's the daily struggle that we have that contributes to uh, the world having a misperception of who God is, but it also contributes to our, um, our struggles on earth as people. I don't think I'm the only one that struggles with my belief in God daily, um, but I would say that's probably a phrase you're not comfortable saying, right? So what I want to do is unpack that a little bit today. We're going to go and, and summarize the mythical gods that we've talked about, but today we're going to talk about the God that is anti-science being a mythical God, a God that doesn't exist, but we sometimes believe in. Um, let's pray and we're going to get right into it. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and that you brought us here today, and I pray that you would speak to us and, and drive us to this point of transformation where you would reveal to us these areas where you want to heal us and grow us. Uh, teach us, O oh God, in Jesus' name, amen. So for me to, I'm going to unpack that, just to be fair, I'm going to unpack what I mean by um, belief. I struggle with my belief in God daily. The word belief that I'm using, the definition of the word belief I'm using is the Greek word pistis or pistueo, and that word means to act as if you hope something is true. My favorite, my favorite uh, definition that I've seen of that is to, is to put your weight on something, right? And so... Belief isn't just a mental understanding or a hope. It's actually an action. And that's what that word means. And you may be wondering why this chair is here. This is what I, I like to use to illustrate what I'm talking about. So this chair is a church chair designed for churches. It has a weight rating of like 420 pounds or 450 pounds or something like that. And I don't think I'm that heavy yet. But uh, it's made in the USA, all new material, polyurethane foam, steel, American-made. It's beefy, right? Made in America. Engineering has designed this four-legged structure for, if not thousands, maybe thousands of years of proof that generations that have gone before me have been able to sit and stand on chairs like this, and it's held their weight. And if I sit there and tell you that I believe this chair can hold my weight, and I, I talk about the construction of it, the design of it, the, the physics behind it. And I keep saying, I believe, if I step on this chair, I believe it'll hold my weight. It, it is, because it's a strong chair. And people bigger than me have sat and stood on this chair. They've gone before me, and this chair can hold my weight. I, I believe it can hold my weight. But if I never stand on this chair, do you think I believe? If I just talk about this chair and and explain them. I could get an engineer in here. I could get a scientist. I could get a physics expert. I could get the guy who built it. I could get the welder. And all of them explain. And then if I just keep saying, I believe this. And in Hebrew thought and the, word, the Greek word, I, belief doesn't even enter the conversation until I step on it. That's what belief is. And, and so because 
I honestly don't know if it'll hold my weight until I step on it. That takes an act of faith. I have to step into the unknown to confirm my belief. We have to take those steps of faith. So what kind of God do I believe in? Well, I have a God that I study, I preach about, I talk about. But every day I have to decide, am I going to put my weight on this? Because sometimes putting my weight means dying to myself. Sometimes putting the weight means I make myself vulnerable. Sometimes putting on the weight means I have to sacrifice something. I have to humble myself. So as we go through our life, we every day presents a new challenge where we get to express what we believe. What do we believe? All throughout human history, belief has taken on different forms. The Egyptians had Ra and Osiris. Osiris. The Babylonians had thousands of religions and gods. The Greeks had Zeus. The Norse had Thor. Romans had Venus, Mars, and Aphrodite. The Hindus have Brahman and Krishna. Aztecs worshipped hundreds of deities. The ancient Celts had their Druids, and they worshipped dozens. In Asia, gods and isms all throughout their history. This definition of who God is, the gods that they were ascribing the unknown to, this is the gap theory. This is like that when, there, when something goes beyond human understanding, we assign it to God, some God, some deity, something mysterious and all-powerful or more powerful than us. So what do we believe? We've had to face these mythical gods that I would say, not only in the public square of discourse, that there's a misunderstanding of or a disbelief in, but in our hearts we struggle with this. The bodyguard God was the first mythical God, the God that protects me, the God that wraps me in bubble wrap. This is the God that doesn't let anything bad happen to me. And we talked about how that, that, that's a very low-resolution, immature understanding of God. It's, a, it's, a, it's an understanding of a God that we may need as a child, but it doesn't grow. Our understanding of a God, that nuance doesn't grow with us. So you remember what we said, a mature understanding of God says bad things happen and a good God exists. We can reconcile that. We can, we can, we can have those two things both be true. The other God that's a mythical God is a slot machine God. And it's, it's this God that, that, that we believe that if we do the right things, if we say the right things, if we behave the right things, if we don't sin in this way, if we, then God will give me the blessings that I want. Or he'll give me comfort. He'll give me provision. He'll give me health. He'll give me wholeness. He'll give me whatever if I do the right things. And so we obsess about ourselves and others doing the right things because whatever we believe that God is dealing, whatever God we believe in and the way he's dealing with us, that is the primary influence for what we believe and what we do as we treat other people. How do we treat other people? So if we treat, if we treat God as if I'm doing the right things and because I'm doing the right things, you're going to pay out a jackpot we withhold our jackpot from people until they do the right things, right? So what you believe about God is the primary thing that, that determines how you interact with others and, what you, and how you treat others. The third God we debunked is the best friend God. Jesus is my homeboy. Now, there's a nuance to this that I wanted to capture is that there is a closeness, intimacy, friendship with Jesus that we can have that satisfies that longing for to be known, 
But Jesus never leaves his throne of holiness to be your BFF. He never, leaves, he never gives up his holiness. He calls us to righteousness. And in that pursuit, we see our friendship desire be fulfilled. And on the flip side, I, don't, I have friends that are buddies. I don't look to my friends for salvation. Sometimes we do. We put a codependent expectation on our friends, on our spouse, on our pastor, on our parents, where we have this expectation of salvation from them. And when they don't meet it, we feel so deeply disappointed. Our friends can't be our savior, and our savior can't be merely our friend. So there is no such thing as a BFF, Jesus is my homeboy God, but there is a righteous, holy God that we're in relationship that satisfies that deep need to be completely known and completely loved and completely accepted as you are. So that's a myth that we believe. And then last week we talked about the judge dread God, the ogre God who's just everything that comes out of his mouth is, you know, we read it as punitive and directive and corrective and authoritarian and it separates us from a relationship with God because the only thing we hear is, is anger and correction and frustration and disappointment. And it leaves us in this spirit of, of guilt and shame and worthlessness because uh, we just always feel like we're making a mistake. And we equate this judge dread God with Santa Claus or someone who you know, always knows if you're naughty or nice. <laughs> you know, and when there, there's no way to have a relationship with someone that you view as always condemning you. Now, we did embrace the fact that judgment is important because God is a God of justice. God is a discerner of right and wrong. But we see from Scripture and the very nature, the whole nature of the gospel is that judgment has happened. And when judgment happens, it's one of two things. Judgment happens, it's either condemnation or forgiveness. But judgment happens. Sin is called sin. Right is called right. Wrong is called wrong. But in John chapter 20, we see Jesus himself says, the father does not judge. He leaves judgment to the son. And what did Jesus declare in John chapter 3 verse 17? What was his judgment? He says, I have not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And what does that saving look like? It's called forgiveness. And then look back at Jeremiah when the prophet declares what will define who God's people are in the new covenant. He says, I will write my word on their mind and in their heart. No longer will you have to condemn each other and judge each other, it says. Because I will write, the, the, I will write my word in your mind and your heart. And I will forgive my people. That's the foundation of the covenant that defines who God's people are, is that we have his spirit of discernment within us and we are forgiven. That's the judgment. And so we as God's people, if we are God's children, we are to do God's work. And the first step of God's work that we're to do is to forgive I can't tell you, man, I was thinking this through and I hesitated saying this last week when we were talking about this, but there are lives that could be saved by the three most, I think these are the three most powerful words that we can either say or hear in a relationship with anyone. I forgive you. And you know what it takes to forgive someone? The passage that comes to mind is, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. 
Let not I, but Christ live in me. It feels like a crucifixion. Dying, it's what says, dying to yourself. Pick up your cross daily. Identify with the crucifixion of Jesus. There's a component of this when we start to enact forgiveness as God's agents, as God's people. What's the Lord's prayer? It says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is his will? That his people are forgiven. And it's a first priority of God's people that we receive forgiveness. Believe that we are forgiven. Act as if you are forgiven. And this is hard. This is really hard. I think this was much easier when I was a kid when there wasn't a permanent record of someone's accusations against you. Like, I'm, thank God there's not a permanent record of my adolescence, right? <laughs> now they just become funny sermon illustrations that I get to move on from. But there are people that have public accusations and humiliation displayed on the internet for all to see that their grandchildren are going to see. It's hard to move on from that. But we in faith get to. And we in faith get to believe that someone else that we see who has a humiliation thing on the internet is not that same person. They're forgiven and set free and they have a new identity in Christ and they have the freedom to live a new life. But if we are continually holding our past against each other, we are never letting each other move on in the freedom of Jesus. We keep them bound. We keep them stuck. And so we have to believe that we're forgiven and act like it. Because if we just believe that we're forgiven and we don't act like it, we don't experience the freedom of what the belief means. We just get stuck and, and we end up, I would say we don't believe that we're forgiven, we just hope. We hope that we're forgiven and that nobody accuses us. When let's live boldly in the freedom of forgiveness. Let's just think, hey, I've made mistakes. I've had false accusations against me. I have people that don't understand me. I have people like, that isn't a confessional. All right, moving on. <laughs> this is very therapeutic, isn't it? Isn't this good? Amen. Can we be set free from our past? Can we be set free that our past mistakes, our past ignorance, our past foolishness doesn't define us? That we're moving into something new? Because we will keep repeating our past mistakes if we don't declare and live as if we're different and, and we're moved on. You are free to run and dance and live. And what I find is it's in that freedom is really the only place that you can make reparations for the mistakes that you've made. Because it's not out of a guilty framework. It's not out of shame. It's not out of trying to earn something. It's because you have been set free. You want to set others free. That's what happens when we live in that freedom. And I feel like there's these chains that we can't let go of that are holding us back in these old identities. And we can break those chains. We've been set free. There is no judge dread God. He doesn't exist. The God that judges in his perfect and infinite wisdom has a final judgment and it's forgiven and free to live a new life in Christ. Every one of the times Jesus forgives, he, he implies or directly says, now go and live a new life. That's our power. There is no judge dread God. That's such good news. Now, this last God that doesn't exist is the anti-science God. And, and it's interesting, if you look back at, at history that, that we can see, 
It's just recent history that in some frameworks of discourse, God and science have become enemies. And that's just recent history. That's a new thing. God and science, it it was never even, even in the realm of something to consider was at war, God and science. But in recent history, it's been conflated that you either believe in God or you believe in science, right? And I think that stems from a misunderstanding of the word believe and a misunderstanding of what the purpose of science is and what the purpose of God is. If people start to look at God as if he was, the purpose of God was to answer all of my questions, then I could see if that's your limited view of God, then science would, would threaten that. Because instead of the gap theory where we say, I don't understand something, it must be God, it's I don't understand something, so let's keep studying it and we'll find out later. What I find is in the highest realms of scientific research and theology, virtually no one thinks that God and science are at war. In the highest realms of research and and deep understanding of any scientific area or theology, natural theology, historical theology, no one views this as a logical debate. So somewhere in discourse in our society, God and science have become at war. And I think it comes down to a misunderstanding or a lack of willingness to understand the definitions of the word we use, why. Now bear with me for a second. So the word why can mean a couple things. Um, I like C.S. Lewis. He always uses a, when he uses a reference to tea, you know he's serious. He loved his tea, right? And so this is one of his references to tea. He says, if you ask me why the water is boiling, one answer to the question why is because it's in a pot that's on a burner that's raising the temperature to its boiling point. And C.S. Lewis says, but if you ask me why the water is boiling, the answer would be because I would like a cup of tea. These are, the question is the same, but the word why has at least two meanings that are irrelevant to each other. One of them is what is its cause, why? And the other is what is its purpose? And when we start to look at one to answer the other's question, if we start to look at science to answer the question of purpose or intrinsic meaning, it can't. It's like saying, how many touchdowns did you score while you were playing baseball? Even that's too close, because those are both sports. It's like, how many touchdowns did you score? Turtles. Like, <laughs> because if you think, do you know what the highest achievement of any scientific research is called? The highest achievement that any scientist can, can have. A theorem. A theory. That's the highest achievement, is a theory. Because science has to leave open to the fact that you can discover one more thing that will destroy all of your scientific research. 
the highest achievement of a published, peer-reviewed document in science can be called a theory or a theorem. Science isn't trying to answer deterministic universal questions with definitive answers. It's not even in that realm. Let alone, science has no room to play in determining something's purpose. Because when we talk about our faith, when we talk about God, He is leading us to a purposeful life for here and for eternity. And He gives us meaning and He gives us purpose. Science can't give us meaning or purpose. So it makes no sense for science and God to be in conflict. And I just used a scientific method of thinking through something to determine that. So when you hear these God versus science, it is a useless argument. I'm going to read a passage um, here that is going to, we're going to refer to it here and there in this next point, and then we're going to, we're going to wrap up. Romans 1, 19 through 20 says, For what, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For, this invisible, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are, not, so they are without excuse. I love this. It's, it's another way to say like Deuteronomy 29, 29. It kind of says um, what God knows, God knows. What man knows is what God has chosen to reveal to man. And what is beyond that, we have faith. We have belief. And so science isn't trying to answer all of these questions of existence. God doesn't reveal to us all of the answers. I tell you, there's a lot of times where when I learn something, I go, man, I'm glad I didn't know that when I was a kid. I'm glad I didn't know where babies came from when I was five. As a parent, I'm glad that I don't have to tell my kids at five where babies came from, right? There's an there's a age-appropriate time for a parent to reveal things to their children. And that's what God is doing to us because he loves us and he cares about us. So the two questions, why? This came to a head too in this uh, sermon series I did in 2011, 2012. And the series was called Jesusology. And the premise, this tagline was God is the God of science. And it was kind of going deep into each one of the sciences that I could get access to. And what I did is I reached out to first the science uh, department head at OSU and asked for permission. And he's like, you don't, these guys are tenured. They don't need my permission. I'm like, oh, okay. Learned a little bit there. And then I reached out all of the department heads, the research department heads, and asked them if they would have coffee with me. I'm doing a sermon series, and I'm doing some research for the sermon series. And I sat down with them over coffee, lunch, breakfast, whenever they could meet, and I interviewed them about their story, their journey, their faith, their science, what led them to their science. But I ended the conversation with this question, and it was, how has your scientific research influenced your faith? That's what I wanted to know. Because in my head, I'm thinking, man, there must be something in their, their scientific research. Or they're oh, look, there must be a God. <laughs> something like that. Like some existential moment in their research. And uh, it was maybe my third or fourth interview. I was meeting with a guy. And if you live in Corvallis, you might know him. His name's Dr. Andy Karplis. And uh, he's a brilliant man. And he, he opened my eyes. He said, you know... It's an interesting question, but you're answering the question. You're asking the wrong question. No. Like, seems like a straightforward question to me. I'm like, what do you mean? And he said, as a scientist, I bring my belief with me 
to the research. It's in me. Because, and this was, this was such a profound point, he said, my decision, he was a Christian man, he said, my decision to follow Jesus is a spiritual decision. It's not based on research. So when I'm doing research, I'm not looking for spiritual answers. Science isn't looking for spiritual answers. He says, but where God comes in is every time, and he says this happens all the time, when I study something deeply, he studied uh, enzymes and their impact on proteins. And he said, as I study enzymes, it's so miraculous what they can do that every time I make a new discovery, because I believe in God, it makes my worship of God get stronger and deeper. My belief in him roots deeper. And then I went, well, what does the atheist do? And he said he puts his faith and hope that in future scientists, they're going to find the next answer. And this happens all the time in science. Our journey with God is a spiritual one, not a scientific one. Doesn't make it less true. I would argue the spiritual experiences we have and beliefs we have are actually more true than any science that we could discover. So there is no God that's anti-science. God, we learn in Genesis 1, God created the world, created nature. He created the foundations and the systems and the processes and the predictability and the interaction and the, and the way the world sim- works with each other. The, all the cycles that we have. And mankind has created areas of study, descriptions, and called that science. Science hasn't created anything. It's mankind's pursuit of knowledge creates areas of focus that God didn't delineate. He said, well, now I'm going to create geology. Now I'm going to create biology. Now I'm going to... God created. And I hope you also see just how useless it is to have that debate. (laughs) What's the fruit that comes out of that? You're never going to intellectually get someone to agree that Jesus is the son of the living God. You can't intellectually get someone to agree that, yeah, a miracle makes sense. It's the whole point. It's a miracle. It doesn't make sense. But it happened. What do you do with that? There's, my, my last point is this. There is a narrative going on in the world today about deconstruction, deconstructing our faith. And it's interesting that just like I did when I was in my late teens and early 20s and I'm, I'm entering into this thing, it was called, when I was a kid, it was like the emergent church, the emerging church. And it was this idea that we need to redefine church. And, and every movement has this desire to go back to the roots and get rid of what mankind has developed. And, and it's happening now, it's called deconstruction. There's a, people are deconstructing their faith. And I just say I encourage deconstruction. I really do. And I think God encourages it. Now, I don't encourage destruction. And I don't encourage this attitude of the world that says, my experiences justify me throwing away thousands of years of tradition because of my experience. No one person is at the center of the world. Yet, someone sent me this video of this woman talking about what is wrong with churches in America. And what is wrong with Christianity in general? And she goes on a rant. And, you know, it's interesting. Buried in her rant, I think, is a valid point. But then she says, if you don't think that, my, that I know what I'm talking about, I was raised by a Baptist preacher. I have a Baptist preacher grandfather. Two of my brothers are Baptist preachers. And this is how it is. So I know how the church is. 
So what she just did proves my point. She used her experience. One person with some experience that is valid, like her experience is valid, but not to be used as a platform for an entire conviction and statement that would destroy, if everyone believed it, destroy thousands of years of tradition and millions of people who have other opposite experiences. But because she feels it in such a deep way, her declarations are universal and forever. And that's part of this me-centered culture that we're in, that because I feel something, it must be true. I, had, I was in a conversation with someone, and I said, uh, I, I had said something that offended them. I know that shocks you. Uh, I can be very direct and to the point at times and, and out of context, but I said something that offended them. And they said, when you said that, I felt this. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't, uh, here's where I was coming from. I didn't, I know what you felt, but it's not what I said. I was saying this. And they said, it doesn't matter because I felt what you said. And so they weren't going to believe what I meant. They were going to believe what, how they interpreted what I said. So the truth of what I meant doesn't matter. And what I'm trying to say is your feelings matter, and I'm sorry it hit you that way. I'm going to try to talk different because I don't want to hurt you that way. But I hope you know what I said wasn't what you heard. But I, now that I know that about you, I'm going to change how I talk because I don't want to hurt you because I love you. I care about you. But they wouldn't let go of how they felt. They said, I felt this. Our feelings don't define reality. Our feelings are real and we have to pay attention to them. But there's, we can't let our feelings and our experience be the center of our deconstructive efforts. If we, can, if we can abandon that, I'm all for deconstruction. And I think God is too. If you look at the book of Deuteronomy, we see this deconstruction happening before our eyes because you have Moses led the people out of Egypt towards the promised land. But where were they for 40 years? Wandering the desert. 40 years is a Jewish writing metaphor. Is that called a trope? It's a Jewish writing tool. That always means a generation. So we know that 40 years at least means just a generation. It could have been literally 40 years, but we know that it means a generation. And that's proven out because what happens in Deuteronomy is if the first generation that fled Egypt towards the promised land, they never entered the promised land. It was the next generation that entered the promised land. And a commentary I read was really cool, eye-opening to me. It said, it's likely because what could be implied here is that the first generation was trying to move into the promised land, but the second generation didn't have their, they weren't the ones told by God to go to the promised land. So they weren't buying into the mission. They weren't buying into the vision. It wasn't theirs. They hadn't deconstructed and reconstructed. They hadn't made it their own. And that is the fault of the first generation for not teaching it to the next generation. 
And this is one of the reasons why in Jewish history, in Jewish families, they have these stories, these oral traditions that they pass on from generation to generation to generation. And they have these traditions and festivals and meals and feasts that they do to ingrain this history from generation to generation so they own it, so it's theirs. But in Deuteronomy, we see this. Deuteronomy literally means second telling or second naming. That's what the word Deuteronomy means. And so Moses himself stands up and he gives the next generation their own vision, their own mission, and they own it and then they enter the promised land. But no one in the first generation entered the promised land, not even Moses. So deconstruction is built into the journey of faith that we're on. And we all have to enter that time where we take, this is, the, this is the faith of my parents. This is the faith of the church I grew up in. How is this mine? And that's what God wants. God wants a personal relationship with you. He doesn't want you to be obedient to the traditions that you've inherited just for the sake of obedience. That is not a relationship with the true God. So in this realm of deconstruction and the discourse that's going on in our world about faith and God and science, what I want us to do is celebrate the one true God and who is the one true God? Who is God? Because that's what really matters. We could talk all day. I could preach every day about a God that doesn't exist. And every Sunday I've tried to point out the God that does exist. And this passage in Psalm 65 tells us about the God that does exist. I'm going to ask the Allen family to come back up as they're leading us in worship. I want to read some quotes to you that kind of put this into perspective because we aren't the first people to think of this, right? We're not the first people to wrestle with this stuff. Everything I got, I learned from someone else. And here's some quotes that I, that I clung on to that our preaching team grabbed as we were preparing for this series. Augustine said, every good and true Christian should understand that what, wherever he may find truth, it is the Lord's. So as we are exploring who God is, we may see a truth in the world that maybe it's typically associated with another faith, another belief system, another, maybe it's a scientific statement. But if it's true, it belongs to God. C.S. Lewis talks about this in this book, Mere Christianity, which if you want to go deeper with any of this stuff, I highly recommend this book. If you've been around me for like a minute, I've recommended this book to you. Um, I read this every year outside of the Bible. I've read this book more than any other book. And I'll be honest with you, you know why I read this book the first time? It's because in high school I had to write a book report on a book, and I got to pick the book. And this was the smallest book in the library. (laughs) And I'm forever grateful that I look for the easiest way because (laughs) this book has changed my life and just the way he thinks. But uh, I highly recommend that book. I read it every year. Uh, Typically in a given year, I'll lead at least one Bible study through the book. Um, We're looking at places and times to do that this year too, so. But here's some quotes from other people. Oh yeah, what I was gonna say about this book, I'm sorry, is uh, every truth is the Lord's. He makes the point in here in the section called Rival Conceptions of God where he talks about if you're an atheist, you have to reject everything about every belief system. If you're a Christian, you can embrace truth no matter where it comes from because all truth belongs to God. Spiritual truths belong to God. Martin Luther observed this, our Lord has written the promise of resurrection not in books alone, but in every leaf in the springtime. I love that. 
John Calvin says that uh, the creation is a theater filled with God's revelation. Abraham Kuyper says, everything that exists was a thought in the mind of God before it ever came to be and therefore has something to say about who God is. We see God everywhere. We see God in science. We see God in nature. We see the nature of God in the systems and the processes of the world. The cycles that we have just tells us something about the nature of what God creates and creates things that perpetually live and grow and give birth. And then in my last conversation, I got a quote from one of our up-and-coming resident theologians, Toby Miles Carter. <laughs> we were talking about this, about the science series, and this, this, he said something to this effect. I took notes when he said it, but I'm not confident in my notes. But this is what he said. You don't have to know science to know God. Isn't that beautiful? You don't have to be a scholar or to have just as vibrant a relationship with God as a scholar. Theologians and dock workers have the same access to God because our relationship with God is not based on human understanding. I love that. That'll make a tattoo. I want to read Psalm 65 one last time. It's a psalm that Heather read, but I want you to read it through the lens of who God is because this psalm does a good job of talking about the false or or declaring who God is in the face of the false gods that we've talked about. Psalm 65, praise awaits you, our God in Zion, to you, our vows will be fulfilled. You who answer prayer, to you, all people will come. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. Blessed are those who choose Blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house, of your holy temple. You answer us with awesome and righteous deeds, God our Savior. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas who form the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength who stilled the roaring seas, the roaring of their waves, and the turmoil of the nations. The whole earth is filled with awe at your wonders, where morning dawns and evening fades, you call forth songs of joy. You care for the land and water it, you enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain, for so you have ordained it. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty and your carts overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the wilderness overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks and the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy and sing. Let's not give our hearts over to these false gods every day that try to creep in and get us to act as if we believe in something other than this God. We believe in a God that forgives. We believe in a God that restores. We believe in a God of inspiration that breathes his life into everything we see. We believe in a God that has hope for the hopeless. We believe in a God that gives second and third and fourth and fifth chances. We believe in a God that can empower us to do the things that seem impossible. We believe in a God that dwells inside of us to equip us 
to bring his light to the world around us, to bring forgiveness and hope and trust and love and sacrifice and kindness. Those are our instruments to do his will. And when we do that, we shine a light of what heaven can look like to someone on earth. And we inspire them to the one true God, a God of love and forgiveness, restoration and hope. That, my friends, is worthy of our worship. So we need to worship. And I would put it to you this way. We need a God who is worshiped. Our, our faith is strengthened when we worship. When we are corporately together and we hear each other worship, even, or our faith is even more strengthened because we get to celebrate. Oh, you, you agree with me that God is holy? You agree with me that God is good? All these voices agree? We are strengthened. We are built up. We need a God that is worshiped. And he is worthy of our awe, worthy of our praise. This is the God that is. So let's worship him in spirit and in truth with all of our hearts now.